netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. This podcast is brought to you by Shotgun Software. Shotgun builds production management, review, and asset management software that clears away chaos, presents information visually, and connects people with each other in the studio or in the cloud. In close collaboration with its more than 500 VFX, animation, and game studio clients, Shotgun is building a pipeline for the creative industry based on best practice. See the new Shotgun client review site and loader at blog.shotgunsoftware.com. Thanks for joining us for this FX podcast. Mike Seymour has recorded an interview with Sony Picture Imageworks VFX supervisor Jerome Chen about The Amazing Spider-Man 2. Jerome's list of credits include the first Spider-Man film, Beowulf, Polar Express, and the Stuart Little films. One area in particular that they will focus on is facial capture, animation, and rendering for Electro played in the film by Jamie Foxx. There's also a really good discussion about the Uncanny Valley. Before we get to that, as always, I'd like to highlight something you may have missed either at FX Guide or FX PhD. Today I wanted to mention a story on FX PhD where we follow a postgrad from becoming a member in the very first term at FX PhD in 2006, where he went from being a software developer to working in the industry and is currently working at Double Negative. I'm immensely proud of what we've done here at FX Guide and FX PhD and the people we've been able to help and inform. And speaking of which, I was at NEB and I was talking with some folks and they were thanking me for doing so many stories on the business issues facing visual effects. And of course, the question always turns to what's next? Well, I need your help because frankly, I have no idea where to go with this topic. By now, I figured companies would have formed a trade association like any other major industry to focus on common business issue. I also figured as we hit three and a half years since IATSE announced their intention to organize artists, that in areas where unions are options, people would have chosen to be a union shops and we have protections afforded by organized labor. But essentially, nothing has changed in the many years that I've covered this topic. So I have to assume that despite all the complaining I hear, people and companies must just like the way things are. So that's where I am. Mentally, I'm just like, well, we've chased all these issues for years now. We've revisited them. We've talked to different leaders and areas and we've tried to bring you information on all the topics, but yet nothing changes. So I turn to you, friends and listeners. What should I cover in regard to business issues? Why do you think nothing seems to ever happen? What solutions do you see? And I, I don't need the forum-type responses. I'm, I'm so tired of reading forum-type responses. But if you have suggestions of things I can do to help, email me at jeff at fxguide.com if you'd like to suggest something. So... With that rant over, sorry about that, I'd like to jump into our podcast for today. This is Mike Seymour speaking with Jerome Chen about The Amazing Spider-Man 2. So um, it was nice, to, I presume, to be returning to uh, Spider-Man after Spider-Man 1? Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, I like the, the familiarity of the collaboration. You know, you don't have to learn people's um, communication styles. So it's mostly just the fact that working with Mark before... You know, you already knew his sensibilities, and it would um, just be a matter of uh, making things even, you know, even better than before. So, uh, in broad terms, how was this different than the first film? Was it the nature of the characters required uh, different sort of um, effects, or was the uh, sort of pipeline so similar that uh, you were up and running quicker? Well, no, because unfortunately... For some reason, they, I mean, not, 
for obvious reasons, or for, to Mark at least, he wanted to change the design of the, the suit. Um, and he, so we couldn't use the, the Spider-Man assets that we had before. And, uh, and Andrew's uh, physique was different on this movie than the last one. And the suit also clung to his muscles in a different way. So we had to basically start over with the Spider-Man asset. Like the one thing I figured we'd be able to reuse, we of course had to rebuild. Um, and then the New York City environment, which was, we had basically perfected it for nighttime work. In this movie, they wanted all daytime swinging shots. They didn't want to do anything at night anyway. They thought it was too dark. So we had to take all the building assets and basically optimize that for daylight in terms of textures and all that. So what's interesting, the only, so the only thing we really had to, to leverage was our experience that we'd had working on the last one, which, um, you know, was, was very helpful, of course, in terms of technology and assets, a lot of that we had to, to expand and rebuild. So let's talk about a couple of sequences we can, because I always find it's great if we can dig down on a couple of things to um, understand how you went about things. And uh, I guess one of the sort of interesting sequences is that first confrontation in uh, Times Square uh, between Spidey and Electro. And we have uh, a set that was pretty much built for that, right, that uh, that the unit shot on. So you, you had effectively a large um, space. And I guess I was kind of surprised when I saw some of the behind the scenes stuff to realize just how much practical stuff was rigged. I mean, when Spidey catches a... a I don't know, a New York um, police car or whatever. There's a police car on wires. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that went into this from a production level. Yeah, I mean, we wanted to try to get as much practical as possible, um, though there were different rigs for different things. We had, um, the, the obviously, the airborne moment of him, and him catching it with CG, and then we were intercut to a car suspended on wires, where the actor would just kind of take the weight a little bit. And then when he flips it off his shoulders, was actually then a separate car that was on a rotisserie ridge, so it could rotate and pivot. And um, it wouldn't actually fall. Um, it would pivot, and then, and then, and then the next, and then would, another rig would actually have it hit the ground. So it was done in a, in a series of pieces. Uh, but Times Square is an enormous space, so we really only had the center part of it built, um, which, which where the, the stands where the TKTS stadium was. And that, that center part of the, the square known as the Duffy Square, was, that's, which is actually like a triangular shape. But all the surrounds, as, as you probably saw in the, the making of, or, um, were pretty elaborate uh, 3D extensions. Um, and a, a crew, basically, crew of probably four or five people went to New York last in November of 2013, and they took LIDAR scans of the entire area, an enormous acquisition of um, geometry and textures and um, high-res F65 video footage, trying to get as much material for the texture painters to work with, because it's a a very, very large space. Um, And and even in some of the the, um, behind the scenes, it looks like we just took took uh, photographic stills and just mapped it onto cards around the space. But because of um, the camera moves and the choreography of the fight, it, it necessitated all three geometry for that. Uh, so it becomes just a kind of an invisible backdrop to this battle between Spider-Man and Electro. But 
that was a that that sequence is about three hundred shots. It probably took a full year for the crew to do. So there's a large area that is this sort of um, I'm going to call it stage. Though I think it was actually shot outside, wasn't it? Um, but there's a large sort of central area that you were filming in, surrounded by green screen. But of course, all the ground's yeah. wet, so all that green screen's reflecting in cars. It's reflecting in the ground. <laughs> Uh, you know, there's it, there's flame sort of bars and stuff going on. I mean, it's a fairly complicated shot, even if you have got a green screen to sort of be able to uh, extend that and build out Times Square around it. Yes, and for the most part, the green screen was only thirty or thirty percent effective in pulling a, a, a providing areas for us to extend. The rest of it was just um, very intense uh, handwork in terms of rotos- rotoscoping by our India crew. And we just relied heavily on rotomats. Um, and then the integration of the existing smoke on the set uh, was a pretty arduous compositing chore for the artists. Um, and, you know, we tried to be uh, discreet in terms of putting smoke on the set, but we were shooting outdoors in Long Island, and during the early morning, a mist would roll in, and you'd get the entire area fogged in anyway. So after a while, we became a little more lenient in terms of providing um, smoke from the burning cars and the steam vents to give you some atmospherics. And um, on film, mixed with the light, with uh, the lighting rigs that Dan Mindel created uh, to simulate the light of the real Times Square, it gives a really kind of ethereal feeling to the background. And and it's quite beautiful, but uh, it made it very, very hard for the artist to integrate um, the, the CG into yeah, I was wondering if I could talk about those lighting setups because um, it seems to me not only is there real, uh, I mean, it's a it's a large ask to get that much lighting to simulate a, one of the most lit, I guess, uh, squares in the world, but there's actual a lot of contact lighting and a lot of trouble that went into contact lighting. In fact, I, I saw a behind-the-scenes shot that looked like it was a classic Technocrane uh, move with a camera, except there was no camera on the end of it. It was actually a set of lights shining uh, at, uh, at Electro to give him contact lighting and he himself has contact lighting in the inside of his hood. In, a, in what is a, that a bunch of LEDs inside his hood? Yes. Um, to help give the makeup, when, if, if, it's, if there's not enough light on the face, um, when Jamie was wearing the makeup, the makeup would kind of absorb the light um, and become very dark. So, because to, to give it the illumination uh, that we wanted, we decided to, um, it was kind of an experiment, really. We weren't even sure what it would give. Some cases, it gave just the right illumination. In other cases, it, it blew the, the face out too much. But we lined the hood with these LEDs that were remote-controlled, and we were able to dial up and down the illumination um, remotely. And we found, during testing, we found kind of a sweet spot of, you know, maybe 20 to 30% of the actual um, entire range of the LED. And we kind of left it there, but... And sometimes um, that was either too bright or uh, which would, when it was exposed on film, his face would just be a white hole, basically, and we would replace it with CG. Other cases, it was just about right. But it gave a quality of, uh, in terms of chrominance to the blue that was the color that Mark wanted on film. So at least as a reference point, it was very helpful to us. And and we mix a lot of the, the, the James face with the makeup uh, you know, in terms of our practical photography, we mix a lot of that into the CG. Uh, so it's not just a complete face replacement. We actually rely heavily on the the way the shading and the way the makeup looks like on film in order to kind of bind um, 
the, the electrodes face together, so the plate actually holds all the layers together to make sure it doesn't look completely synthetic. Because he did have a lot of makeup on, um, and in shots where he's not wearing that hoodie, he's got stuff all over his top uh, torso, hasn't he? I mean, it's a it's a yeah, he's wearing extensive. a full yeah, it's a full. Depending if he was in the shots when he's at the uh, Ravencroft, um, he's got a full suit on. Um, basically, and in terms of uh, in terms of a bodysuit, mm. so so that you're was done by a K, that was done by K and B um, FX, who um, probably covered for their uh, their Walking Dead uh, zombie effects, right? And and when that is looked at on film, um, I mean, it's not I'm not sort of disparaging about film, but I mean. Dynamic range and shooting at night was this like five hundred ISO stock? Like, I mean, how clean was that film from grain and stuff to be able to extract this and do this stuff at night? Um, it wasn't because of the the, the green the the green we used. Um, we covered the cargo containers with billboard, basically uh, vinyl. You know. Uh, Kind of a vinyl, a billboard material, and painted it with approximation of, of what would be digital green, um, and it was it was it was noisy, but not not as much as you think. Um, and there was quite a bit of light um, that, that Dan was able to pour onto the, the scene because um, we used these very bright LEDs, these Barco uh, lights, these arrays. That were on cranes to kind of simulate all the jumbotron lights um, that you'd see, you know, in Times Square. So we actually were able to print it down a little bit to give um, the, the, the quite the correct density. Hmm. Um, but most of it, because of the smoke and the the fact of the fall off on the of the focus on the, the people in the background, on the edges, um, the, the, the focused edges is where you got into a lot of noise issues, and which is where. You know, rotoscope, rotoscope became um, key, um, and that—that's actually where most of the noise would happen. <clears throat> and it was also interesting because of all the fire emanating from the cars. Some of these, um, and there are often two or three cameras shooting because uh, Mark really wanted to cover it with a long lens, and the long lens would often shoot through these sheets of heat ripples. Right, so you'd also get this distortion that would be flickering in the air that the, the long lens would be shooting through. So there's, there's that extra. So if you had the composite, the Times Square, and the smoke, you, you had to run the same type of ripple through the coast. Um, we had to simulate the look of the, the air distortion happening. Right. Um, that, that, that happened frequently. Uh, in fact, we liked the look so much. There are a few CG shots uh, and toward the end of the movie. Um, that we decided to actually just add this this kind of fake heat ripple across the whole frame as if you know we were shooting through another you know through a fire that was just near us. Because I have spoken to supervisors who said that they've done stuff on digital, they've gone back to film, and they've been kind of amazed at how uh, unclear or the lack of sharpness and clarity of contrast and uh, and sharpness that they're experiencing on film that they kind of remembered it being better than this. And it wasn't that the film was degraded. It wasn't that the process was bad. It's just that at some point you can kind of get used to an uber sharp digital signal. Not that it's better or worse, just that it, uh, you know, I mean, film has its own characteristics and one of them is really not um, 
these days as digitally crisp and sharp as the as uh, some of the stuff we're seeing from digital cameras. True, but we, you know, this film actually shooting that film is actually kind of um, brought me, you know, it reignited my passion for film as a capture medium because of how organic and and abstract it can become. Because uh, there's so many. You know, we consider them these beautiful anomalies as you get through the lens in terms of the warping and the, the how things fall off in the light. And um, we we worked hard to actually emulate it uh, in, in the CG shots, and we worked hard to if the CG elements are incorporated into the um, film frame. We worked hard to make sure that all matched, and but it does it gives us such a, a softer look to the actors and to the environment and, and um, you know, we really, we're really happy with the way that looks and the way it came out. So if I could swing back to Electro, we started discussing him and I, I kind of took you off on a tangent there, but the makeup, while good, isn't obviously the transparent um, sort of look that is in the final film. Um, talk to me about that merging between the live action and what you did as final CG, because I noticed that he didn't seem to have tracking markers on his face. Is it Was the makeup enough to be able to track off? Yeah, I mean, we had a scan of his face, and there were you could track the veins. There's some We picked some landmarks. Just follow that. We picked some landmarks on his face to track with, uh, and it just became an issue of just uh, rot- you know, iterations of rotomation to kind of match and, and make sure the, the muscles and everything uh, were, were tracking between the virtual version and the, and the plate. Um, How did you scan his face? Was it a static scan or was it a bunch of uh, fax scans? Uh, no, they're static scans. Um, we didn't bother you going with the fax scan. Um, we had a, a, we have a, We've done a, a, you know, quite a few fax-based um, uh, solutions in terms of facial capture, yep. and we've gotten, we did scan uh, fax poses right. um, that that we would have Jamie do, you know, still the, you know, the standard 40 to 50 different poses that help the library. Um, but our animators uh, have gotten pretty good at, at looking at faces and seeing how they track. And we created curves that were give us targets to kind of follow along the contours of his face, and it just became down to arduous. Um, well, we had you know, we, and there is a we we provided them a full facial rig from which to work from, and if you had the fax poses to uh, to to basically register against, um, we got a pretty tight tracking out of it. So we would do a a pass that we thought was pretty good, and then we would render the CG. And then as we got further along into the work, if we noticed areas that would slip, we would either go back and do further tracking on, on the troublesome areas or just try to massage it in the composite. Um, but we didn't go for any type of tracking markers. Um, we felt pretty confident we could track off what was there. Um, and I did, for once, I didn't feel like painting out all the markers. We didn't need them. So in this one, we just went on that trial. Was it easier to do Electro's face because it's not uh, what you'd call sort of normal human skin, and so therefore the benchmark wasn't one that the audience kind of already has in its head, or was it harder because you're trying to do this transparent, uh, under-the-skin kind of glow? And I'm just wondering because, I mean, in a realism sense... 
you're not heading for a classic realism in the human face, but you are trying to come up with something that's pretty original. Yeah, it was actually turned out to be very difficult to get the right contrast and the right sense of um, having an, a, a light source emanating from inside uh, his face and making it feel like it was going through the, uh, you know, a, a layer of, of, of substance. Because um, that all, that's all defined by contrast and brightness. And depending on what the lighting was inside um, the particular set that we were shooting on, you know, sometimes it was easy to make it feel like it was glowing. Um, particularly, let's say, when he's in Ravencroft, the lighting is a little darker. Um, but there were cases where uh, we, the skin was pretty brightly illuminated, and it, it was really hard to try to get the feeling that there was something, also another light source within his skin. Um, but for the most part, the Ravencroft was favorable. But it became very difficult in situations where he's in a bright room, such as there's a scene where he's in the penthouse with... with um, Harry torturing a Mencken to try to get information from, from them, and it's you know there's daylight coming through the windows. Those shots, we had to darken his face in the plates considerably, maybe a stop and a half almost, to make sure more to make sure that there was enough level or darkness for the um, you know for for the for a range of, of, of inner glow to show. So balancing all those, the sense of illumination within within him was. It was very, very difficult, and, and there, were, there were very few shots that just kind of dropped in. Like, whatever recipe worked in one shot, we'd have an angle that was almost identical, except maybe, you know, it was done a couple hours later in, a, in, in the stage, and the lighting was just a little different, you know, this, and the face was moving in a different place, and that the recipe that worked in the composite for the previous shot didn't work at all. So it was really making sure we felt that the, the bright points of the energy had enough contrast and diffusion to them to make it feel like it, we were, there was a gelatinous, um, you know, fluid or substance inside the skin that was the light was emanating through. So I think it was, it was just as hard. Um, can, I, can I talk to you about the eyes? Because he seemed to be wearing some kind of contacts, but it's a very distinctive part of the look, those uh, sort of almost uh, ring lights that are in his eye, as it were. Like when we're looking at his face and on the final screen, it almost looks like he has a circular illuminating disc. Um, it's, a, it's quite a distinctive look. Yes, uh, well, I'm glad you noticed that because what's interesting is originally we were going to have the, the sclera and the iris all be almost one value. Like they were, they were just going to glow. Um, so that the whole, so there wasn't... Um, it wasn't. It was almost by accident that we came across a version where the white, the sclera was black, and the eyes were very bright. And we realized, oh, that, that's that's what we should do. Um, you look right, directs your attention right at his his his, his iris, and the you know we can we can say that his you know the whites of his eyes have been sheared black. And it was just it, it, that was not the original idea. The original idea that the whole eye hole was glowing a little bit more. Um, and we're different colors also, but um, some of those cases we had to, to use CG eyes. He was wearing contacts, but we did not make an effort on stage to light, to illuminate those contacts or to illuminate the eye socket very much. Right. Uh, so it was tough to track 
he had to make sure that we tracked his eye movements correctly. Otherwise, it would. Um, it's interesting. The eyes are actually the more del- most delicate part. There, there were cases where suddenly, you know, we would put the CGI. We'd have a real face. We put CGIs in, and they weren't moving correctly, and suddenly you have an uncanny valley happening. And all you actually were doing were the eyes. The rest of the face was completely real. So the eyes were so, so critical. So we worked hard to make sure that the movement of the eyes matched what Jamie was doing. Um, and, you know, went in the cases where we had to do CGIs. Other cases, we were able to pull a key off the contacts and give, you know, because we, we were animating this kind of energy flow that was happening in the iris. So um, when possible, we always used um, as much value as, as we could from the real one. Look, just as an aside, you are obviously one of the most experienced supervisors and, and probably one of the best people in the world placed to comment on the Uncanny Valley because of Beowulf and Polar Express and everything else that you've done, uh, Spider-Man and stuff. I mean... It, how how realistic is it right now to to drop in a uh, realistic uh, actor that isn't done like uh, like Electro is here in the kind of uh, electronic glowing sense? Like if you had a script that required um, an Electro but to look like a normal actor, is that is that easy? And I'm not talking about a digital double now that might be uh, flying around uh, uh, masked. I mean an actual face shot like the ones that you were doing in this film. Um, I'm still leery of them. <laughs> yeah. I, I've always, because I, I think in terms of rendering technology, I think the look of the characters could be, um, imperceptible if it was a still, of course. But the minute they start moving, it's the animation, um, that, that still is very difficult to reproduce. I mean, you could spend many, many weeks working on one shot, and you know, and we've done that, and other crews have done that. Just one shot, a close up, and you can get away with it. But to try to sustain it over two, three hundred shots of a character is um, is very, very difficult. But I believe the look of, in terms of the rendering, that's come very far um, in terms of the animation and all that it requires to sustain the illusion for several hundred shots. Um, that's not there yet. Because it is the case that, uh, you know, you've done a lot of work in faces and normally, um, as you say at the moment, there's a tendency to want to do rotomation to match. And we talked about those facts, references, um, those facial poses. But I mean, there isn't really an onset solution to minute face muscle tracking that's connecting like you can't have Jamie on set, no makeup, just happily doing the stuff and then do a sort of digital version of it because this, this doesn't seem to be a, a fidelity to be able to translate the under skin musculature to match. And as you said yourself, the Uncanny Valley magnifies the second you turn on animation. Is that is that a fair assessment? <laughs> yes, you said that very well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean... Yeah, it's still, like I said, I'm still leery of attempting that. Um, it would have to be, I mean, you would ha- you would be hanging a lot on the success of a movie to try to accomplish um, accomplish that. But is there anything that would stop you expecting that sometime in the next X years that you and your team, you know, 
I mean, there's, is there anything that you think is that intractable that it sort of pushes it so far out that you couldn't see you, you or your team doing it sometime in the, in the future? Oh, I, I suspect definitely someone in the in the next two years is going to want, you know, is going to ask us to do that, um, and it's challenging, and it it and it has also to do with the cost of it. Um, it could be doable, maybe. But it's going to be expensive because it requires um, iterations on each attempt, each shot, um, in order to try to get right. And, and there's no button to fix it. You, you're looking at it, and you have a whole room of people. And we went through this on Beowulf. You have, you know, ten animators looking at it, and, and you know, ten other CG lighters, and some of the best. And you're looking at it, and you go, this doesn't work. Uh, doesn't look real yet. What is What's wrong with it? And you know, you've been looking at it for six weeks, and you just keep on nudging this and that, and knocking certain things out of the way, and it gets better and better. But at some point, you got to move on to the next shot. Um, but if you had the time and the ability to keep going, um, you could get most of you could attack most of the issues um, to get you out of the uncanny valley. But it's a long valley. <laughs> <laughs> So I know you don't work this way, but if you had like a kind of the five go-to things when trying to get Electro or somebody else's face looking realistic, it sounded like from what you said earlier that you'd start with the eyes. Is that fair? If you wanted to make sure that they were looking good? Yeah, you start with the eye and you start with what you feel. You look at it and say, do you feel that person? You know, is there something, can you tell what they're thinking? You know, and, and, and if you don't, like you know, and that's just all the, the the engines are working at that point. You've got all the skins working, the, the just the right amount of glint in the eye. That's the pores feel right. The you know, there's a little bit of hair that glints in there, and and if all those are working, and you still look at it, and there's still you're still not feeling it as a person, then you know what you know what do you do there? You just you, you at some point it's um. You have to ask, well, maybe there's just not that thing in the eye, that magic, you know? Yeah, because it's not as if we don't have terrific subsurface scatterers now, and it's not as if we don't have really good global illumination or even, for that matter, ability to do skin pores and, uh, at a modeling level. So it is, it is, I guess, um, almost reassuring for me to hear that it's not easy for you to articulate exactly when it's not working, because God knows for the rest of it, it's not, it's not that easy for us to articulate. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's the the thing is, I mean, it maybe it works. You can do it. We've proven they've proven that you can do it on animal, you know, animals. You do it on alien avatar. They're completely believable, but they're not humans. Uh, apes has proven that, it, that you know, and between and Lord of the Rings, cre- these these creatures, non-human, can have you feel a soul. Oh, that's coming from the animator and the actor, so you feel that in there. But if we're just encoded to be repulsed at things that look like humans that, that we know we're not, that may be something that we could, you know, it could be something that we'll never uh, overcome because it's just some sort of thing that's programmed in us. Are you saying that that is the case? Or are you saying that it might be the case that we won't overcome it? I think it might be, I think it might be the case. Because it works. It, it, wor- it works in all the other cases. It works in Avatar. It works in... Um, but has do we know of a movie yet 
And I would have to say, even in Beowulf, there are moments, brief moments in some of those characters where, um, where you believe them. I mean, this, you know, Brennan Gleeson's character, you know, there's the, you know, there's just moments where he gives a glance, um, and you would buy, and you would buy that. Um, the females have always been really hard to like, just in terms of their skin. Um, but there are even moments in Beowulf himself, the main character, where you you you, know, you buy him. Um, but again, it's just it's so so hard to sustain over you know a thousand shots. Um, well, I mean, Beowulf so. is two thousand and seven, and we've had significant advances in render tech. Because I, I do totally agree with you. I think on a still. We're getting remarkable results, but I think the animation is just incredibly hard, especially lip sync, uh, just yeah. tends to be, um, a nightmare. But, but I also know that when it's not working, it's, it's never as simple as, well, the lip sync isn't right. It's never as simple as the eyeline isn't right. <laughs> we have this, we have this, uh, I, I, I made a joke a couple, this just like three or four weeks ago. The joke was, uh, in our interval between the next movie, I wanted us to redo Beowulf with today's technology. <laughs> I'll try to. I was going to try to go to the heads of the company. And says, "Give me a hundred people, and you know, maybe in a year, and we redo it. <laughs> See what comes out." So, but, when you get yeah. to do in uh, Spider-Man, you get to do these slow motion sequences. These sort of time. It's not time frozen because it's still moving, but it's incredibly slowly. I mean, someone might say, oh, "Well, that's easy. You just do it all CG." But that's. That's not as simple as it sounds because of exactly what we're talking about, which is that you've got slow movement, close-ups on characters where we can really see them. Um, but I guess, in the, I guess in the case of Spider-Man, we don't see his face because he's under a mask quite often. But, I mean, how did you solve those real slow-mo shots where it goes into kind of spidey time? Oh, well, it's, it's a remarkably simple way. We basically hired um, as many athletes dancers, people with extremely good muscle control uh, to be the, the background extras. And for those shots, they held their pose literally as still as possible. Um, as so in, in Times Square, when you're going, when he's going up that, uh, whatever it is, stadium yeah. kind of seating, that's were, just a bunch of... It's just a bunch of people pretending to be holding their pose. And, if they, and we would place them in, in awkward poses that you couldn't actually hold unsupported so we built stands and, and things like that to, to support their legs or their arms and their clothes we would wire up to look like they were you know you know moving and flowing and caught in, in in that moment if they had hair that was we designed moments where a woman with long hair would be splayed out and and frozen in a moment we would just have her wear a skull cap and we would do that in cg so we would do the hair in cg or the or one particular costume would be in CG. It was in a really dynamic pose, but really it was just people holding very still as a camera moves past them at you know at, very, at you know seventy two hundred and fifty fps. Because there's got to be twenty or thirty people on that stand. Um... Oh yeah, and they move, and and there'd be a wind that would come by during the shoot, and you know, while the camera was shooting, and people in the clothes would flutter, and you would just paint on. You paint it all out later in post. You track things and stabilize it, but it was basically as low tech as you can imagine. It's just hold really still and have the camera go by you. 
Okay, so when it's when the camera is flying up and their Spidey's trying to stop them being electrocuted by the railings, kind of thing. I mean, how long are you expecting uh, those? I'm going to call them performers, um, but I guess they're actors. But you know, I mean, how long are you expecting those people to stand still for? Is that a move that gets done in a minute, or is that something that like they need to hold that for ten minutes? Uh, it could be three minutes. Right. Okay. It could be six minutes for certain certain moments. Um, long enough where you would have to give people a rest afterwards and. Because, as I say, if you tried to do all of those people as CG, we'd have, you know, the Uncanny Valley times 30 on every one of them, practically, because we do really yeah, pass their faces slowly. Yeah, and plus, you know, I don't have that... I can't put that many... Res just from a strategic point of view, yeah. I can't put that many resources all in one shot because there are so many other, um, other shots as hard, in a sense. But that yeah. shot was one of the first ones to start and probably one of the last ones to deliver in the movie. And just a lot of arduous paintwork and stuff like that. Um, the uh, actual um, electricity, I guess, or the, the bolt, the lightning stuff that's zipping around the screen, obviously that's uh, added in post. But I'm wondering how procedural was that or how much is that an artist uh, sitting there, um, you know, animating a curve that then gets... Um, you know, was it super repeatable or was it uh, really a matter of just setting up uh, a bunch of procedural maths on that? No, it was um, it was driven initially by an animator because the animator would time out how long it took an arc to reach from Electro to whatever his target place was. And then we had these various gizmos that would put him up, give it the same amount of noise and frequency and amplitude that, to the look that we wanted. And out of animation, it would go into a Houdini, a Houdini effects pipeline, and um, different layers um, of effects would be driven off that original curve that the animator supplied. Because the idea is that there's, um, you know, there's all these phases that we designed to get an electroblast. And first, there is the, the precharge, which is something that arcs the field of energy that emanates from his hands. So there's a pre-arc, which is like three to five prongs that come out at you as if they're hands trying to grasp you. And then they co they collide into one bolt, and then that's usually when you get the flash frame. And then after that, we get what's called burn-off, which is a, a variety of, of gases and plasma that are erupting. And those were mostly influenced by by space photography that we found of nebulas and, and stars and things like that that look like there's expanding glasses and gases and lightning happening inside of it. And then after that, we get this little bit, not too many sparkles because we don't want it to be magic, but those, all those passes were driven from, um, the, from an animator's curve, basically. Because then we could approve that um, with Mark in our animation phase, prior to, to investing in the rendering of all the different passes, we'd get timing, and then the editor could buy off on, um, if the lightning may appear in one shot from Electra's hand, and then we cut away and be a wide shot, and we would need to see the pacing of where it went. Um, so that was a good way to get a timing approval in the animation phase, and then have it uh, driven by an effects pipeline so that it was consistent, at least. Is that a conceptually the same pipeline that Spidey's web is working on? Because he has this kind of barbed wide web stuff. I presume that there's an animator curve that drives that, and then it goes procedural at some point, because you wouldn't be 
modeling all of that stuff. True. Um, well, that's a little simpler only because it's just the geometry on the curve. This also, the, the bolts um, had different variety of timing and uh, timing passes associated with each, um, with each layer. It's kind of like waves of electro, aren't there? Like electro has igniting waves as opposed to a single stream. But I guess I just thought that, uh, again, you know, even though it seems in some senses that he's shooting straight lines, obviously he's not in, in many uh, instances. And there's, there are incredible close-ups of the web. Just, you know, um, I don't know if we had them quite to this extent before, but we certainly in the same sequence I'm talking about with the uh, Times Square, we get to see the web very closely, especially as one of the uh, web firers fails. Yeah, we we the web the web pipeline um, has a lot of of dials in it to, for us to finesse things. I mean, we even were able to come up with a. Um, you, did you see the movie, right? Oh, the whole oh thing. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So so you know we were able to to the shot where he shoots the web out after at Gwen in the clock tower, where um, and it was actually quite by accident initially that the the front of the web because we've never really seen what the front of the web looks like in slow motion so um it does look like a hand doesn't it yeah well the first one of them looked like a budding flower and we made one but it looked like a hand and and at first we're like oh that's a little too obvious you know it's 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 too metaphorical but everyone ended up liking it Uh, in fact we changed we showed it to mark and and he liked it and then we thought that it was we should just keep going and make it look more organic, and it started to lose its its power as it did manage once it became a little more um, um, a little more what you thought it would look like, which was less like a hand. But we went back to the hand because it told it really told the story better. Yeah, yeah, and it was such an emotional moment um, in the film. Yeah, uh, it really needed to uh, have that kind of sense of. Uh, reaching and grasping at uh, what could be yeah no I, I thought it worked uh, though obviously it was very metaphorical but uh yeah it was a pretty elaborate clock tower i mean i guess um <laughs> yeah. yeah clock tower changes depth between 100 and 600 feet from shot to shot <laughs> seen there quite a lot of moving parts as well yeah um half of it was the area around where Goblin and Spider-Man are fighting is just a, quite a few um, real ones, of course, that John Frazier created. Um, and then all the ones below and around it had to be CG. We had, and we had to basically have a replica of the um, clock tower in CG. Um, it, you know, that would match the set, which is uh, pretty standard these days. But it, it, it we adding the significant amount of dust and, and effects and making it feel like the air was very cloudy with decades of, of old detritus. That was that was where most of the work came in to really give it that feeling. Um I thought the clock tower turned out pretty cool. Just that yeah. I was watching theory. I was watching thinking about your work, uh and uh, again, you know, spoilers, but at the very end when um when uh, the rhino suit appears, I was thinking someone must have really loved that suit. It's not actually on screen that much, yet it has to be very articulated. I mean, it's obviously pretty easy to spend a lot of time on Electro's look when you know his name is in the title of the film and he's clearly on screen a lot. But the rhino suit was um, both iconic, but also 
just not that many minutes of screen time. Was it quick to get there? I mean, I'm, I'm right. Somebody must have loved that quite a lot in modeling, I'm sure. Well, not just, I mean, the animator, I mean, come on, the right the suit, for some whatever reason, a, a weaponized mechanical suit that is always like the effects geeks, you know, wet trains. Yeah. So, you know, um, they spent, they overmodeled it, you know, gave it incredible detail, they over-textured it, and they, they rigged probably every little piece so that it could transform into a, you know, into a dog if it had to, but just in case, um, and all out of love, as you mentioned, but, um, yeah, I mean, it didn't take, the design phase took a long time, it wasn't, the weather workshop started on the early part of design, they probably did, you know, it must be eight, must be hundred drawings for the, for the Rhino. Um, and at the end, um, Blur Studio and Imager has kind of finished up the design. And the idea was that it's kind of like a hodgepodge of, you know, leftover 80s Oscorp technology that they sold to the Russians and <laughs> they made a prototype of the suit. Um, so it was fun because it was, it, it didn't need to look so polished in terms of its design, but it still needed to have a, a lot of textual detail. It looked very polished um, from a visual that, effects point of view. It didn't look like anyone that, had cut any corners, which is what made me think that someone must have really loved it because you could yeah, have done that for less. Uh, I wouldn't say it would be any yeah. better. It would be worse. But, um, you know, it was like clearly it had all the, you know, it was almost like someone is like, oh, wow, <laughs> no one's going to pay any attention <laughs> if I just spend all, all week on this little bit over here. And uh, while everybody else is yeah, worrying, I mean, even down, even down to the you know the the, the tear gas grenades are <laughs> they look kind of like beer cans that are rattling in front of them. Uh, I, the idea I thought was great because he's Paul Giamatti is wearing basically a white stained um, T-shirt yeah. in there. He's, it's not like he's all suited up with uh, you know with some sort of fancy mech suit, and there's not even a there's not even seatbelts holding him down, and you don't even know how he's operating it. Which is I, mean, I was asking Mark, like, well, do we want controls? I mean, do you want any HUD display? He's like, nah, just slow tech. He's just he's fiddling <laughs> with knobs down there. Nobody will see it. Um, yeah, I mean, but, amazing uh, to see Paul go from uh, Downton Abbey to uh, to Rhino. But what, what did what did you actually film of the actor on set? Like, what was the basis? Was he actually at that location for any reason, or was it yeah, done studio? We did, we shot Paul on location. Um, he was actually in a, uh, we call it the rhino cart. He was on a, um, a, a contraption that suspended him up at the right height so that his head was at the proper height where he would be in, once he was in the rhino canopy. And he was interacting with Andrew Garfield. So, that, so Andrew and, and, and Paul would have somebody to look at. And more importantly, um, I wanted to have a way that the lighting would match so that you know, once we later, because the other alternative is I could have just done a green screen. Yeah. We could have just all completely later and emulated the light. And, yeah. And it never looks right to me. Um, even some of these, these these shots, it was challenging to get him to fit in. And he was at the location in the right, you know, it was all shot in the same place. Right. Um, and he's even at the right position. Um, There's just... Um, and we built a kind of a canopy, a gray, uh, matte gray canopy around uh, Paul so that the shadows would be cast correctly on him uh, from the CG version of the Rhino. Um, 
but, you know, when I was talking to Mark, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to make this thing, but we got to make sure the design doesn't change, right? Because then the shadows would be in the wrong place. He goes, oh, that'll be fine. Of course, in post, we changed the design, <laughs> so the shadows don't line up quite right. And, uh, you know, you try to be as smart as you can, and it's never, there's always something that's going to. When you were shooting him in the in the beginning of the film, in the truck chase, was he, again, in a truck at a location, or was that, because obviously, you know, there's a bunch of stuff that's um, CG. Most, most, of it, most of it was on location. Right. Um, there are probably only four or five shots um, where we shot them in a parking lot um, in, a, in a different location. Um, but for the most part, there wasn't a lot of green screen. Mark and, and Dan and I talked a lot about how to do that, and, and, and John Mahaffey, the second-year director, and he, you know, John, we were all... John Mahaffey was the main um, flag bearer wanting to do it with the real lighting, on location, with the right stuff flying past them. Um, and, well, Dan Mendo is actually the, the main advocate of that. Um, John actually was leaning a little bit more process work in certain cases because it would have made it would have been easier for him to deal with. Uh, but, but overall, Mark said, less green screen, the better. Let's just do it for real. Andrew Garfield, you mentioned earlier, obviously, if you're talking about actors, and, and uh, there's, there's a very good reason why Andrew Garfield wouldn't be under the Spider-Man suit, not least of which is, you know, you want a stunt person doing some of the stuff and hanging off walls. There's really no reason to have Andrew Garfield hanging off a wall. But I was wondering, when, when it wasn't Andrew in the suit, was the body double that or the stunt person enough of a match that that just worked all in camera or did you guys have to do any digital body work just to accommodate the differences between um the actual actor and the and the person that might be doing a particular stunt for him no there was in fact we matched um the, we made we scanned andrew and the body double in all the in very uh, spider-man you know, poses various poses uh, so that we can match the physique and we made sure our digital double had the right um, type of flex in the quads and the lats only because this um, the, the stunt double had this was he, you know he had this incredible physique basically and we always want to make sure that you know then the suit clung to the body differently in this movie than the last one because of the fabric's a little looser um, around you know, certain areas, but tighter than others in terms of its stretch, and it emphasized the body in a different way. Uh, but the cool thing about this suit was, uh, and it was different from the other movies, is that we, um, because it was looser, we did it as a full cloth simulation. And we were able to get a lot of wrinkles and, and, and folds that would, would flap and the result of the wind and stuff. Um, so even though we had to, re- you know, as I mentioned earlier in the call, that was... Um, little annoyed that we had to re- just rebuild the entire suit. One great thing that came out of it was the fact that um, we were able to do a cloth and, and able to get the this rippling effect to happen, which um, helps make it a little more believable. So, Jim, I need to confess, um, and I was one of the people that criticized the first film in one aspect only, which was the swinging physics. I uh, In the first film said that I, I just had some issues with uh, with how he swung as a like pendulum action, uh, given the scale. And I understood the problem because at screen time, you want people to move pretty quickly, but a very, very long uh, swinging object takes a long time to move across screen. It's the same criticism I've leveled at, at other issues in other films from um, 
from giant robots down. This film, you seem to get around that, I don't know how, much better. I was just wondering if I could fess up to my criticism on the first one and, and ask you how you managed to... I mean, there are, there are less cranes in this film, but there there is still swinging, and it seemed to work better. Yes, we we blended... We have this tool that we, we've, we've worked into our animation pipeline. And David Schaub um, is like this, the biggest proponent of... of of physical gravity, uh, was like a, he was basically um, a drill sergeant in terms of making sure that everything obeyed physics. So Spider-Man was swinging down. We had a tool, basically a simulator, to take a ball or or it would show the arc that would really happen if somebody if something jumped at the correct height and weight. Yeah, you know, it's basically all proper physics. And then we would look at compare that against the uh, CG animator one and blend between the two of them to make sure and adjust the animation to make sure that the arcs and the weight all felt right, but also uh, you know trying to incorporate these these if Spider-Man had to do a pose or or all the Spider-Manish things that he had to do, um, it fit within a, a correct arc of something in a correct pendulum. Um, so it was just basically paying more attention to physics and looking at the animation, not just from the camera's point of view, but we would also look at a lot of orthographic views on the top, bottom, side, and, and just made sure that they obeyed motion and those angles also. Um, and so, so, so this was different than what you did on the previous one? This was different than what you did on Amazing Spider-Man 1? Uh, a little different. We just paid a lot more attention to it and, and, and basically wouldn't lull ourselves into thinking, well, it looks pretty good to camera, or that's a cool moment, but then we take the extra step to say, well, he's, you know what, he's moving too fast, or there, that, that doesn't work. Let's check that against the physics tool and make sure, you know, we call the process, you know, uh, obeying Dr. Gravity, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> philosophically, you know, Spider-Man can resist G-forces, he's self-healing, he's super strong, but he can't, you know, he can't defy gravity. In physics and SS. So I'm um, glad you noticed. Actually, a lot of people have noticed, actually. And, and it's a subtle, it's not an obvious thing, but it feels so much, it feels so much different to us. I mean, look, and I'm not trying to be mean or anything, but there, there was a scene in the first film, it wasn't a pivotal scene, um, where he was leaving a, a, a vertical, uh, like a <clears throat> square van. It was not a not a courier van, but it was that kind of a shape. And I remember distinctly he was going underneath what looked like a rail overpass or a subway kind of thing. Uh, not a subway, um, a uh, overhead train. And anyway, he was doing small swings, so it wasn't between buildings. And I remember just sitting in the audience, and it just felt like he was moving too fast. And yet, obviously, you wanted him to leave the shot because it was the point in the film where he had to just get out of there. And I remember thinking to myself, well, the, the only way you'd get around that, there's just no way to get around that other than just completely turning that into several shots and putting edits in and cutting and doing things. I just had, there was just no solution, you know, you kind of, and I'm wondering, like, in this film, it seemed like you could use the slow motion trick to kind of change the pacing of it without having to necessarily change the cut. But, but it, there is a point where if the editor says, I need this guy just to swing off and get out of here in like, you know, 28 frames that you say, well, it's not going to, you can't do it in 28 frames. I mean, can you go back to editorial? Is there, is the flexibility there to say, I know this is a shot that finishes in 28 frames, but we need 45 or you need another shot. Yes, we, we, 
we you're absolutely right. We've got we constantly in the animation phase um are talking to Pedro, um the, the editor and we negotiate that constantly and we often will go back and say, you know what, we had that we added forty eight frames here. And as long as it wasn't to the point where sound has already been begun their work, he was usually really open to it. Uh but then there are cases where um he wanted to speed it up because he's like, I got to get, I got to get to the action. I want to speed it up by twice. And it wasn't as bad. The, the first movie, um, there was a lot of speeding the shots up after the fact, uh, after we'd animated it. And then suddenly, you know, and, and you have to fight it out with the, the editor. Oh, right. So you'd actually, that. you'd actually animate a shot that you thought worked in 32 and you'd see it in the cut and it was now 26, but it was sped up. Is that what you mean? That happens a lot. Right, okay. Because that would obviously, that would cause someone like me to criticize your team in terms of animation or visual effects when completely what you were probably working to looked terrific, but it was then editorially changed. Um, but you're saying that happened less on the second film? That This movie, we fought harder against that happening. And it, and, and it actually did, in this movie, I don't think it happened at all. They didn't speed any shots up after the fact. Um, last movie and other movies I've worked on, there have been plenty of cases where we give it, we find an animation, we even render it, we give it to them, and then, you know, and I'll look at the cut weeks later and, and notice, wait, why did you, you sped that one up? And they're like, yeah. You know, at that point, they knew we were going to get mad, so they didn't want to tell us. <laughs> you know, and, and so, and, you know, but you work for them, so what are you going to do? But then well, that happens. It happens on a lot of movies. But this one, there was, an, oh, there was a dialogue about it. Well, it seems um, like a really healthy dialogue because uh, it certainly seems uh, noticeably better and in, a, in an important way. Yeah, and what's interesting is sometimes these speed things are subjective in a sense. It's like, like oh, he's moving too fast. It's like, oh, no, he's not. He's moving too slow, and you go back and forth. Um, so, but, but the good thing is there's dialogue about it, and, and sometimes there's arguments about it, but um, we're sensitive to it now. Was this a film that, that, when it was turned over to you, it remained pretty true to that cut? Or was this one of those films where, for good reason, there was changes in whole acts, and so your team sort of had, I don't know, sequences that ended up, for want of a better term, on the cutting room floor? Was it, was it a pretty tight turnover? Um, we only had 34 weeks of post-production. Okay. <laughs> so, there, in the last movie, with the... Spider-Man 1, we had about 50 weeks. Um, and we just we started shooting February of 13, and I, and I delivered the movie March of 14. So very short, very brisk. And we were, you know, so we, we did a lot of shots that, um, like, to give you an idea of the pace, we'd get a cut, we, we, the cut would be turned over to us from the uh, editorial, we'd work on shots, and they are constantly cutting you know, sequences, and and we would show a final. Um, you know, we'd be in the screen room, the director would be sandwiched between the director and the editor, and we'd show a shot, you know, electro shot, great, you know, composers slaved weeks over it, and, and Mark would kind of glance at Pietro, and Mark would go, this is great, we'll final it. And uh, Pietro would go, yeah, I just cut that yesterday. <laughs> but... There, you know, you got to service the, the movie, and things move so fast, they don't, they can't, you know, we can't give them a, a report of everything that's going on to the minute. Sometimes, 
there's casualties. <laughs> you um you shot this on film, so you shot this mono, but I certainly saw it in stereo. Um, did, was there any considerations for stereo? Um, some consideration, not as much as uh, Ed Marsh and I would have liked. Um, but you know, there are. I mean, Dan Mendo's very talented. The Parson is also a traditionalist. He just, you know, he's shooting this for anamorphic film, uh, for this 3D screen, and uh, you know, stereo is is, you know, stereo means box office, but it, it, to him, it's a fad, and he's not going to have it compromise his frame. So, for instance, if you want the foreground, you know, the classic is a nice foreground element that you would compose for. Uh, stereo, you probably shouldn't have that element in there. Uh, there's cases in the movie where we're shooting in the Ravencroft scene when Electro's in the, the torture rig, we're shooting through the mesh of that cage that yeah. he's held captive in. And I, I, I asked the production designer to make sure that we could build this thing so that the, the, the mesh could come out so that we could shoot it and then we could put the mesh in later if we wanted to. Um, but they wouldn't have any, you know, the, the, Dan wanted to make sure the mesh was there. Like if he, if he could have welded the cage together so he couldn't move anything, <laughs> he would have done it. Um, but yeah, he's, I mean, Dan's great. He's the most, one of the most collaborative DPs in terms of visual effects I've ever worked with. I mean, he really was looking out for us, um, on many fronts, but he did, he made very little allowance for stereo and Ed Marsh, um, realized that and decided well I'm just gonna have to deal with it in post you know I can't they don't want you know it's too many battles that they want to fight about smoke particulates things like that they like to you know um, Dan comes from the really in Tony Scott school filmmaking there's gonna be stuff floating in the air you know whether you like it or not well yeah and it's a good film school to come from right I mean it's the you know it's hard to argue with it I guess um, yeah, but, but at your end, were you rendering stuff with stereo or? Oh, uh, the full CG shots. Anything that was that was already full CG, we would prov- the, the vendor would provide the stereo eye. It was MPC right. um, or the or ImageWorks. Uh, they would just give the other eye. And other shots, if it had a plate, it would be dimensionalized. Well, look, it's uh, it's certainly a film that uh, that we enjoyed, and uh, in fact, my whole family enjoyed. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it's it opened here in Sydney before it opened in the US, so uh, we've already had uh, quite a reaction here locally. But um, yeah, thank you so much for taking time to walk through the shots with us. We really appreciate it. That's great, Mike. Thank you. Thanks, Jerome, for joining us here on the FX podcast. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you might want to check out some of our other audio podcasts. The RC covers production, cameras, and gear. The VFX Show is some VFX people talking about recent and classic VFX films. And over at our training site, FXPHD, we have a podcast designed for people enrolled called This Week in FXPHD. So that'll do it. For my partners, Mike Seymour and John Montgomery, this is Jeff Huser. We'll see you on the next FX Podcast. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.